the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Now for details. The following program has been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Today's sermon is pre-recorded. A covenant of deliverance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, tonight I just step back and ask you to step forward. I ask that I would not be seen or heard, but that your spirit would be seen and heard. Lord, quicken my heart and quicken our hearts at your word. And Lord, tonight, give us the ability in your spirit to accept this covenant of deliverance. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. They were in a most difficult position. They were slaves, they were beaten, they were scorned, their baby boys were killed. They were in a desperate place, and then God sent Moses, and he said, I will deliver you. They trusted the word Moses spoke, and their bondage grew deeper. And their misery was increased. In bitterness of heart, they turned away from Moses and they said, Your word is worthless. You've only made our lives more miserable. You are utterly useless to us. Leave us. Go back to your sheep. Instead, Moses went back to Pharaoh. And plague after plague after plague begins to rain down as the weeks transpire into months. The plagues fall upon the nation of Israel, utterly devastating this whole land, destroying the infrastructure, taking out their agriculture, destroying and breaking down their social culture. All the time, the people of Israel are watching, they're looking. They're saying, what's going to happen? Are we or are we not going to be delivered? And there were many of both opinions. Moses is a troublemaker. The word he's speaking is not true. You can't trust Moses. Oh, but look at the power of God manifested in his staff. Look at how he is striking Pharaoh. We are gaining revenge over our enemy. And so the arguments went back and forth. And finally, after nine plagues, the Lord God of heaven speaks about something totally different that will now take place in the land of Egypt. We find it in Exodus, the 11th chapter. So Moses said in verse 4, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Well, at first blush we say this is awesome. God is going to work an incredible miracle. This is the final revenge. Wait a minute. It says, throughout the land of Egypt. And they live in Egypt. 
What's the difference between the children of Israel and the Egyptian? Nothing. They're both sinners before God. They both deserve to die. And so the judgment is pronounced on everyone who is in the land of Egypt that the angel of death is going to pass over. And now we have this great struggle in this passage of Scripture, and we are forced to struggle with it. You have the justice of God, and you have the mercy of God. Justice demands retribution. Justice demands that you pay for your sin. Mercy says, give him a break. Be kind. Give him another chance. And so which will rule? And how do we bring justice and mercy together so that they can kiss? Or is it impossible? There is no covenant of deliverance if mercy and justice do not kiss. There must be a coming together of these two, or there is no righteousness to God. If justice rules, then he is a legalistic tyrant. If mercy rules, He is a permissive sugar daddy. And so which is God? The covenant of deliverance says he is neither a tyrant nor a sugar daddy. But rather, he is a loving father who disciplines his children. But it's not sufficient to say he disciplines his children when his children deserve to die. And so the problem of the ages has been, where shall justice and mercy make up? Where will be their reposing place? How do they come together as one? If that does not happen, none of us will throw our crowns at the feet of the the throne in that wonderful and awesome place we call heaven because none of us will be there. So how do justice and mercy kiss? Watch. Among the Israelites, verse 7, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, and all the people who follow you, after that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Now there's a tough place to be. Moses has cast down the gauntlet before Pharaoh. Justice is going to be done to you and your nation. The angel of death is going to pass over you, and judgment will fall upon you. But he too is a sinner. He too has an eldest son. And how will mercy enter the picture? It begins to unfold for us in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. In other words, something so spectacular was going to occur that the children of Israel would now begin their time reckoning as a nation. Up to this point, they have not been a nation. They have been a mob. They've been an enslaved family. But now they will become a nation. And they will count the beginning of their life as a nation by establishing a calendar. And the beginning will be the first month of the first year of their existence. Now, what was it that was going to happen? Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to show you something. Hold your hand right there in Exodus, the 12th chapter, and go with me to the book of Luke. Luke, the 22nd chapter. This is at the very end of Jesus' life. He is preparing to go to the cross. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus said to his apostles, as they reclined at the tables, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In other words, Jesus is eagerly looking forward to a Passover meal before he goes to the cross. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among them. For I tell you that I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. There were three cups in the Passover meal. He takes the last cup of the Passover meal. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In other words, in the Passover, we find the whole story of what Jesus did. And I want to tell you now, justice and mercy have kissed. And they kissed at the cross. And the world has recognized that justice and mercy kissed at the cross. Because what year is this now we're in? 2005 of the year of our Lord. That's what A.D. stands for in the Latin. Now you notice 
the dating did not begin at the crucifixion of Jesus. It started before this, as it was also at the Passover. It wasn't until the 14th day that the Passover lamb was offered. In other words, there's a work of grace that begins to go on in a person's life before they are covered by the blood. And that work of grace is nothing that you or I have done. It is what God has done. Do you recognize now the work of grace that God is doing in your heart? There's a work of grace he's accomplishing for you. Do you see it? Let's go back to Exodus, the 12th chapter. The instruction is that each man is to take a lamb for the household. They're to prepare that lamb. Now listen to this, verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. In other words, all the people are going to kill the lamb. The eldest of each family, the father, takes the life of the lamb. But representatively, it's all the people who killed the lamb. It was all the nation of Israel that put the Lord Jesus to death. The Passover lamb. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. So here we have the lamb being slaughtered. Verse 7, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now let's stop just a moment. God is going to send a death angel and that death angel is going to pass overhead and he's going to look down and when he looks down, he's not going to see who's in the house. He's not going to see if the house has modern furniture in it. He's not going to see if it's a hovel and all broken down. He's not going to see who's in the house. He's going to see the blood. That's all he's going to see. He's going to see the blood. Now, I want you to catch this tonight. Israel's history began with a lamb. Everything that Israel had done prior to the Lamb's blood did not count. It was forgotten. It was wiped out. They begin the first day, the first month, the first year of their life. Their calendar begins then. Now please hear this truth for your heart. When you come to Jesus Christ and you step under that blood, your whole past is forgotten by God. Some of you keep punishing yourself with what you've done in the past. You keep coming to God and say, oh God, please forgive. 
He doesn't even see it. All he sees is his blood. It's on the door. The blood is on the door. You began your life when you stepped under that blood. And he doesn't look to see how good you are or how bad you are. He looks to see if the blood is there. Now, let's, let's try some examples. Here's a father who is an unbeliever. And his little boy, the eldest, comes to him and he says, Daddy, I heard from Johnny that a death angel is going to pass over. And we're supposed to put blood outside on our doorpost. Did you put blood on the doorpost? And he says, yes, I did. You're covered. Relax. There's no blood on the doorpost. Is he safe? He thinks he's safe. He goes to sleep that night with absolute assurance he's fine. Is he fine? No, he's not fine. The death angel is going to take his life because there is no blood on his door. Or another one, a little boy, he goes to daddy and he says, Daddy, Johnny told me a death angel is going to pass over tonight. Yes, I know, son. You know the lamb we slaughtered? Yes. Come here. Come here. Let's go out. I want to show you. See the blood above the door? You can trust that blood. That blood's going to cover you tonight. The death angel is going to come, and he is going to see that in this house, death has already visited And he's going to pass over. Because the death angel will not strike twice. Only once. You're not punished twice for a crime. You're punished once. There's no double jeopardy. And so the death angel flies over. He looks down. He sees the blood on that door. And he says, that household is covered. Death has already come. Now, how did death come to that house? Death came with an innocent lamb who lived without sin, innocent of all wrongdoing, a year old. In other words, in full strength, full grown. Not a baby, not an old lamb, a full grown lamb like Jesus, in the strength of his manhood. Now, many of you think we're saved by Jesus' death, and we are. But we are just as much saved by his life. You see, Jesus' death would have meant nothing had he sinned against the God of heaven. When Jesus lived, he had a will that was not in accord with God. But that was not sin. Having a will at odds with God is not sin. Remember in the garden, he said, take this cup from me. He didn't want to go to the cross. The problem is not in the will. 
being against the Lord God of heaven. The problem is in following through on that rebellious will. Acting on that rebellious will. What if he had said, no, I'm not going to that cross. I'm not doing it. There was no added merit to Jesus for us that he suffered so terribly. That's the problem with the movie, The Passion. It emphasizes something that the scriptures don't emphasize. The severe suffering of God on the cross, Jesus on the cross, was only of value because it represented the extremeness of his obedience to the Lord God of heaven. That he would obey even though he suffered to this extent. Otherwise, his sacrifice would have meant nothing. There would have been no saving power in his sacrifice had he not lived that holy life without sin. And so even though his will was in opposition to God, he prayed it through so that he submitted to God. The scriptures tell us he prayed with loud cries and with tears and then submitted. There was no value in the loud cries and the tears. That's what he had to do to get where he had to go. Now, if Jesus had to do that to get where he wants to go, what do you think we're going to have to do? You think we're going to get away with polite little dear Jesus prayers? No. We're going to have to cry aloud because our hearts are against God. Our wills are against God. We want our will. And the Lord is saying, submit. So let's come back. The Passover angel is going to go over. He's going to look down. He's going to see the blood. And he's going to say, death has already visited that house. I will pass over it. Now notice, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire. Now I want you to see the glory of God tonight. The death angel is passing over, and in the very midst of death, the Lord God of heaven is saying, now I'm going to feed you. I'm going to nurture you. I'm going to strengthen you. So here we are. The death is there. The judgment is there, but we're covered by the blood. But he doesn't just cover us with the blood and say, now stay there and just sit still. He says, while you're waiting for the judgments of God to pass over, eat your fill. Eat this lamb. Now, he does something else of great interest to me. He doesn't say, put the meat in a pot and cook it like they often did. No, he doesn't say that. He says, roast the meat. Well, why would he roast it? Because out of the jaws of hell, God is snatching the food that we are to eat. It is out of the fire. 
And so Jesus dies. And out of that death, God takes Jesus and breaks him as bread for us and as meat for us and feeds us from Jesus out of his death. Now, you would think that just the opposite would be true. That the death would be hidden away and covered and that Jesus sitting on a throne would pass out bread to his people. That's how I would do it. I'd say, let's keep private my problems. And when I'm on my throne, I'll feed you. And Jesus says, when I'm on the cross, right out of the teeth of hell, out of the fire of hell, eat my body, drink my blood. It's real food. It's real drink. It's for you. But now there's a catch. I want you to see this. Along with bitter herbs. Along with bitter herbs. What are the bitter herbs about? Because suddenly you see your condition before God. And there's all of the bitterness of sin that rises up in your heart. And you say, I don't deserve this merciful covering of blood. I don't deserve this food that I'm being fed. I'm a sinner. And all of your pride is broken. Here is Jesus in his worst extremity. Here is God in the worst extremity that you can imagine on a cross, stretched wide, stripped naked, beaten, dying. And he says, Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. In that worst possible place of death. The thing which we fear more than anything else. The grave. It's out of that place of death. He breaks his body and he feeds us with it. But along with it we eat the bitter herbs. Because we finally see how arrogant we've been. We finally see how we've played with God, with sin. We finally see how we've trampled on the mercy of God. I mean, all through the plagues, God has been so merciful to the children of Israel. For the majority of the plagues, they haven't come near the homes of the, of the children of Israel. He has spared them. Which of us in this house have not been spared by the mercies of God? Time after time, God has delivered you. And now the bitter herbs, as we recognize what God is doing for us, we recognize what it's cost him to do it. Our hearts are broken before him. All we can do is weep before him and say, Oh God, thank you. Have mercy on me, a sinner. When you begin to catch a hold of a vision of what God is doing in this amazing place. He is the most powerful, the most awesome being in all of the universe. And he's found at the point of greatest weakness and despair and brokenness that could possibly be imagined. 
And in that place of brokenness and despair, he says, my blood covers you. My body feeds you. My blood quenches your thirst. That's when we taste the bitterness of the herbs. And we say, oh God, I don't deserve this love. I don't deserve this mercy. This is grace beyond anything I can imagine. This is beyond my understanding. How can you do this for me, O God? But that's not all. Bread made without yeast. In other words, they are eating Jesus Christ because he has no yeast in him, no sin. He's pure, he's clean. Do not leave any of it till morning. In other words, have your full. This is not the time to diet. You're going to be on a journey. And you're going to need great strength for that journey. Fill up, eat up the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, I want you to notice, it does not say, and it was Israel's Passover. It is the Lord's Passover. It is the Lord executing judgment so that judgment and mercy can kiss. Eat it in haste. In other words, don't be caught up doing anything else. I had two brothers when I grew up. We worked hard on a farm. We would often be up at daybreak and in the fields by dawn. When we came home for dinner at night and we sat down at that dinner table, a blessing would be said. And for the next time period, there would be no conversation. Each boy was making sure he got enough food, even if it meant having to lick a piece. Eating was serious business. It was not time for casual chit-chat. It was time to eat up. Then after the meal was finished, we would relax, and Dad would begin to tell stories. We'd begin to talk. We'd share the events of the day, and we might sit for another half hour around the table just talking with each other. The picture we get here in the Scripture, this is serious eating time. Get it quickly. Don't be caught in foolishness. You're going to be on the road very soon. And you're going to need every ounce of energy that can be mustered out of this food that you're consuming. So eat well. This is how you're to eat it. 
with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, again, let's take our examples. Here's the young man whose daddy said he got the blood up on the door, but he really didn't. He's not safe. To me, this represents the person who comes to the church listens to the preaching, is inspired to do a better job with his life. So quickly comes to the altar and he says, I'm going to try harder to be a good person. And he makes vows to discipline his life and to try harder. And then he leaves. Is he safe? No. It's not by trying harder that we achieve safety. It's true that none of us have been able to keep the law. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all alike in the same place. If it is not the blood covering for us, then all is lost. Now, we pass by this so quickly. We think, oh, we're mature in this. We understand this. No, we don't even begin to understand what took place here. This blood is of such precious value that when it's put above our doorpost and we put our trust in that blood, not in our doing a better job, When we put our trust in that blood, our history begins all over. Our identity is established in Christ when we put our trust in that blood that's over the door. Our identity does not begin when we have achieved a certain amount on a checklist. Our identity begins with that blood. That's what gives us identity, the trusting in that blood. Tonight, are you trusting in anything other than that blood? Now, let me try to expand this just a moment. When you say, I'm going to trust in the blood, what you're really saying is, there is going to be now a supernatural work outside of me that is going to be done by the Holy Spirit in my life. This is not a work that I can achieve. It's not something that I can do. It is something that the Holy Spirit has to sovereignly do in my life. So that when we come to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul can say, you're saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. Now here's the problem. 
I trust myself to discipline my life. I've been taught from early childhood how to be disciplined, to not procrastinate, to achieve my goals, to move forward. And if I can't, to go talk with someone who can help me move forward. And if they can't help me, somebody else will be able to help me. So I could go to the bookstore, Christian bookstore, so-called, and find all the self-help books, and they give me the strategies for moving forward with confidence in God. When you trust in the blood, you recognize that all of that goes straight to the garbage pit. This is a supernatural work of deliverance that only God can do. You cannot deliver yourself from anger by going to a psychology course on anger control. You can't go to anger management classes and get the job done. You can't go to AA and get the alcohol taken care of. If you do, what you'll manage is simply to control your alcohol habit, and the rest of your life you will be going to your meetings saying, I'm an alcoholic. Well, my history didn't start then. My history started when I saw the blood. Because the Word says I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a supernatural work then that has to occur. So when I say I'm going to trust in that blood, I'm not just saying empty words. I'm saying I'm trusting God to do a sovereign work in me that I can't do. Which of those Israelites could have gotten out an AA gun and shot down the angel of death? (laughs) I've got a bazooka. I'm going to get you. No, I don't think so. The angel of death was impervious to every attempt of righteousness or defense on the part of the person. There is a trust that we have to turn to God and say, my will is not in line with yours, almighty God. But I'm going to cry aloud to you that you do a sovereign work in my heart and in my life that I will be changed into your likeness and I will trust the blood will change me. It's the blood. I can't try harder. I have to tell you all, I've tried and I've tried until I've worn myself to the bone and I couldn't get the job done. Oh, I could get the outside painted pretty. And I could fool most of the people. But I couldn't fool me because I had to look at me in the mirror. And I knew the secret hidden sin in my heart. And that secret hidden sin could not be dealt with anyway except a sovereign work of God as I trusted in the blood. There is no shortcut. There's no other way. The only entrance into the kingdom of God is through that doorway that has the blood on it. You can duck and dodge, you can weave, you can play with the world, you can go to the counselor, you can do the whole game, you can take the classes in self-improvement, you can do everything possible to turn the situation around, you can read your eyes cross-eyed. And in the end, 
You're a piece of grass blowing in the wind. Today you're here and tomorrow you're gone. And life is over. There is only one hope we have tonight. And that's in that precious blood of Jesus. On the doorpost of our lives. And we've got to make a decision about what we're going to do with that blood. Will we trust the blood? Will we lay down all self-attempts at righteousness? And will we trust that blood? That's the entrance into the kingdom of God. That's when our history begins. Let's say that Jan and I come, and we have a long history of of bitterness in our past, of, of abuse in our past. Maybe I've been beating her up and she's still with me. I haven't been, trust me. But let's say we come and we're broken and we've got all this mess between us and individually we've got all this mess. We come to Jesus and we both make a decision that we're going to put our trust in that blood. All of the past is forgotten. It's over. It's finished. The first day, the first month, the first year begins when we put our trust in that blood. Now, there's no need for us to go back and beat ourselves up with what happened in the past. We don't need to analyze it. We don't need to go back and dredge it up. Now, my background is in psychotherapy, especially in family practice. And I can't tell you how many times I've had families come and do all kinds of exercises and visualizations and pounding on pillows and doing all kinds of foolish stuff to try to get through the past. You know what? There's only one way to get through the past. It's called the blood of Jesus. It's called being born again. It's starting over by the blood. When I put my trust in that blood, God begins to do a supernatural work in my life and in my heart that brings absolute and total deliverance to my soul. Now, what would you think of the other young man whose daddy carried him out and pointed out the blood. Daddy brings him in and puts him in bed. After he's been in bed maybe five minutes, he says, Daddy, Daddy, could I go see the blood again? Daddy picks him up and takes him outside. Son, see, there's the blood. Okay. He's in bed five minutes. He says, Daddy, Daddy, how do I know I'm safe? Son, it's the blood. Well, Daddy, how do I know I'm safe? Son, it's the blood. Is the little boy safe? So what of, of what value is his whining? Of what value is his constantly stirring up his rest and going outside to look again at the blood? Of what value is it? It's of no value. It only tears him down and takes away from his rest 
and then it will take away from his eating the food. Because he'll have to leave the table and go outside and keep looking at the blood. And while he's out there looking at it, the angel might pass over. Then he's not under the blood. None of you walk in this, do you? (laughs) See, it's a hard question. Do you trust the blood of Jesus Christ? And do you trust the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that He has begun in your heart that He will finish this work in you? Either His blood is enough or you must find another way to deal with the justice of God. If you turn away from His blood, you must deal with the death angel. I confess tonight I have no way of dealing with the death angel. And I have no desire to try. My trust is in the blood on my door. I trust what Jesus is doing in this church. I look at this church and I don't understand what he's doing. But nowhere in the scripture is there a requirement that I understand what the blood is. The only requirement is that the blood is there. I don't understand why he's taking you down some of the paths he's taking you. I don't understand why some of you have some of the struggles you have. I don't understand. It was not given to me to understand. It was given me to claim the blood over this fellowship and believe God to do a supernatural work in the heart of this church to prepare it to be a cloakroom in the kingdom of God, a prayer closet in the kingdom of God. Not a place of importance, not a place of stature, a place of humble service where we wait outside and hang the coats up for the guests. I mean, I'd a lot rather be inside sitting at the head table. But that wasn't given to me. What was given to me was a national prayer chapel. Chapel meaning coat closet at the king's palace. Do you understand tonight? Our place of safety as individuals and our safety as a fellowship is not in programming or in psychology or in trying. Our safety is not even in making sure we have a perfect place of abiding. Our safety is in the blood. It's in Jesus. Now, Lord, I ask tonight that you with great power and great authority would begin to do in a new way a supernatural work among this congregation, giving us full trust and confidence in your blood.
dealing with the sin of the past, wiping away the bondages that have held us, setting us free, Lord God, by the blood. Lord, I declare tonight, I put my faith in your blood, even though I have to eat the bitter herbs. Lord God, feed us. Feed us till we want no more. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Thank you.